A patient comes into your office. He tells you he was seen in the ED since you last saw him for fluorid CHF. And, of course, the ED never called you to tell you. You don't have those records. But what's the best prognostic indicator of his survival for the next year? You're listening to ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Frank Peacock, Vice Chair in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Peacock is also Chairman of the Emergency Preparedness Committee. He's co-editor of the book Cardiac Emergencies. He's widely published, and we're very fortunate to have him on the show today. Today we're discussing acute CHF, prognostic indicators, and risk stratification. What do we know and what has changed? Dr. Peacock, we're very glad you could take the time out to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, too. Now, first of all, tell us a little bit about BNP. What is it and how was it discovered? Well, BNP stands for B-type natriuretic peptide. It's a whole series of hormones that are used to signal various events in the bodies. And the way that BNP is is that when there is stress on the heart of either pressure or tension in the myocardial wall, BNP is released. It's sort of like a defensive hormone. It causes you to urinate salt water. That's why natriuretic peptide comes from. So volume goes up, you make BNP. Volume goes down because you urinate it out. It also happens in other situations. People think of it as a heart failure hormone. It really is more of a ventricular stress hormone. So if you have primary pulmonary hypertension or acute pulmonary embolus, both which are going to result in elevated right heart pressures, BNP can rise. So it's not a standalone test. You can't think of, oh, the BNP is up, it's heart failure. What you have to think of is the BNP is up, why are ventricular pressures up? Most commonly, it's heart failure, but it's not always that situation. So it's sensitive but not specific? It's pretty specific at higher levels. If it has a low level of BNP, so if the BNP is on a scale, there's two kinds of BNP. There's B-type natric peptide, BNP. That's on a 0 to 5,000 scale. And it's also the precursor hormone, NT-pro-BNP. And that is synthesized and then chopped into pieces. One of those pieces is BNP. That is on a 0 to 35,000 scale. But either one of those that is elevated, the higher they are, the more likely it is to be heart failure. And when they're low, and for BNP it's under 100, for NT-pro-BNP it's under 300, when they're low, extremely sensitive. You do not have elevated pressures. You don't have heart failure. You think of another diagnosis for that patient's symptoms. But when they're high high being greater than 400 for BNP, greater than 900 for NT-pro-BNP, much more likely to be heart failure. And the higher they are, the more that likelihood is. Now, you notice I left a gray zone in between. Yes, you did. And that gray zone, you have to sort of sort that out, where it might be heart failure, it's just early, or there's other reasons, or it might be something else. And so you have to be a doctor at some point and say, you know, this is likely to be this situation or not. Now, there are heart failure patients that walk around with elevated levels of these hormones. And so an example I use is a patient shows up in the emergency department with a BNP of 700. Well, that might be heart failure or it might not be. And what you have to do is find out what they live at. If they live at 700 and they're coughing up green things and running a fever, then it's pneumonia. It's not heart failure today. But if they come in and it's 1,300 and they normally live at 700, then it's an exacerbation of their heart failure. It's about a 50% change is the magic number where you start saying this is a new change because there is a natural elevation and lowering of BNPs that just occur from a lot of reasons that we have trouble explaining. So if a patient has a 10% change, probably not clinically relevant. A 50% change clearly is clinically important. 
How widely is it being used today? And importantly, you think it's being used correctly? Or is it just added on to a panel of markers and left for someone else to interpret? Well, I think that's the last point you make there is the one that I worry about is that if you fail to think about the clinical scenario, you're going to be wrong a lot. and No doctor really wants to do that. So the idea of adding it on and just reacting as a number blindly is not the appropriate way to use it. Now, when you talk about BNP, it's available as a point-of-care test. Lots of places use it, not necessarily as a point-of-care. They have the machine in the lab. Most ERs have some type of measurement. Uh, the last time I saw the numbers, more than 85%. Because shortness of breath is a very common diagnosis in the emergency department. And one of the things that happens is patients will get elevated BNPs, and the doctor will go, well, he doesn't look that sick. And as if their clinical gestalt should overrule it. And my answer is, if the BNP is really elevated, you have a problem. That patient has a high risk for bad outcomes. The higher the BNP is, the sooner they're going to die. It's a very tight relationship. And that's not just long-term, it's also acutely. Greg Funnero and I published a study that showed if your BNP is greater than 1,700 at hospital admission, your probability of death is about 6% that week. The probability of death of a myocardial infarction in most hospitals is 4%. So this equals an MI. And no matter what you think of how good that patient looks, the numbers should make you concerned. And I think docs are used to that with, like, EKGs. The EKG shows an ST segment elevation MI. Right. The patient has a high risk of dying. You don't ignore that. You don't have to second think it either. You just you yeah. go with it. Yeah, you don't say, oh, the patient looks pretty good. I'm going to ignore it. <laughs> yeah. The answer is no, it's a STEMI. So tell us a little bit about the ADHERE database, because that's where a lot of these results have come from and been looked at. Listeners may know already, but give us a little background to ADHERE. Sure. ADHERE was the National Heart Failure Registry. It was sponsored by uh, SIOS, which was subsidiary of J&J. They enrolled 200,000 heart failure patients in it. So it's really one of the largest and richest data sources we have to understand what the state of the art and the care of heart failure is. And we really learned a lot about heart failure that we didn't know before. The data set is so rich. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I am speaking with Dr. Frank Peacock from the Cleveland Clinic, and we're discussing prognostic indicators in CHF. So what did ADHERE discover about troponin and CHF and mortality? So this was a study that we just published a couple months ago in the New England Journal of Medicine. This looked at troponins, and there's two kinds of troponin. There's I and T, and we sort of lumped them all together and said it didn't matter if your troponin was elevated, what were the outcomes? Because this is a fairly common event. It happens somewhere between 6 and 10% of all heart failure patients. You get a troponin that's a little bit elevated. And the question is, what does it mean? We used to call them bumped a little. You know? Yeah. And the idea was, well, it's just heart failure. And so what we did is we looked at them, and we had a population of 14,000 patients with elevated troponins. And with that numbers, we were able to show that the higher your troponin is, the sooner you died. And it wasn't six months from now. It's in the next week you died. The mortality rate from that was fairly significant, exceeded that of an anterior MI. So it was really sort of changed what we thought of troponin. So it, my answer now is that everybody who comes in with a decompensated heart failure needs to have a troponin level obtained. And if it's elevated, you need to be worried about it and maximize the therapy that patient's getting. Now, you know, some patients who are in stage, you may not be able to do anymore. Heart failure is a chronic disease, and the end point of that is they die from it. But as a marker of death, if there is some patient that you're on the fence about and the troponin's elevated, this is somebody you should be very aggressive. They should not just get bolus Lasix and watch. They should get more aggressive therapy than that. Now, you said mortality in-house exceeded that for anterior MI? Well, if you look at the national data for myocardial infarction, just lump all MIs together, not just necessarily anterior ones, lump them all together, it's about 
Now, we're very aggressive with those people. They go to the cath lab, mm-hmm. they get stents. The risk of death from troponin elevation in patients presenting with heart failure is about 8%. So it's a markedly increased risk of doing poorly. You can also lump that with the BNP. If you have a normal BNP and elevated troponin, your risk of death is increased. And you said for that hospitalization? Yeah, for this week. If you have a very high BNP, your risk of death is elevated. If you have a high BNP and you have a high troponin, the risk of death is about 10%. So either one, markedly elevated, is a problem. Together, it's even a worse problem. We're now developing risk stratification tools that are very objective in terms of patient outcomes. And when I talk about outcomes, I'm talking about this hospitalization outcomes. And when you talk about a high BNP or a high troponin, is that viewed as a percent or an absolute number? Well, for most troponin labs, uh, if it is detectable above the threshold of the hospital, the 99th percentile, then that is a positive troponin. For BNP, it's a linear function. The higher the BNP, the worse they do. In our study, we did quartiles with 1,700 being the top quartile, about 850 being the third quartile. And that's where mortality really picked up in those higher quartiles. So either one of those being positive as defined in those terms is an ominous finding. Now, in the past, for years before there was the technology today, clinicians know to auscultate for an S3. They know they're in CHF. Many times, if you've been doing this for years, you know they're in CHF before you even listen for an S3. But you did a very interesting study with acoustic uh, cardiographic analysis. What did that show? So what acoustic cardiographic analysis is, is we took out the, there's a company that makes a product called Autocore. It removes the V3 and V4 leads from the EKG and replaces them with microphones that also have electrocardiographic sensing capability. So you get a dual sensor placed in the V3 and V4 position. What that does is allows you to record two kinds of data simultaneously. You get the electrocardiographic data, so you get the time intervals of the heart, and you get the acoustic data in digital fashion. So then you can process that. The advantages of that is it's instant. It is data that you can get within 10 minutes of seeing that patient. You don't even have to draw blood. And the real reason to do this is because, yes, everybody knows the S3 is really important. And if the patient has an S3, they stay longer in the hospital, they die at a higher rate, they cost more. It's a bad marker to have an S3. The problem is doctors today, and I don't know if they were better 100 years ago, but doctors today miss four out of five patients who have S3s. Yeah, I believe that. It's hard. And if you put it in an ER environment, you know, Patients are yelling and screaming. It's noisy. It's even more difficult. So what we did is we took that device and we looked at the accuracy of diagnosis for physicians in the emergency department compared to if they had used the data that they could obtain with electroacoustic waveforms. And it doubles the rate of accurate diagnosis in the first 10 minutes. Now, you can say, well, in the first 10 minutes, I don't have a chest X-ray and I don't have the BNP level back yet, and there's a lot of things I'd like to have I don't have. But the reality is in sick patients, you have to make a decision, and you have to make it now, and you don't get to have the chest X-ray, and you don't get to have the BNP levels. In an hour, you'll have that stuff, but right right now you don't. And so it improves the accuracy of early decision-making in the population of patients who present with undifferentiated shortness of breath. So troponin BNP markers, short-term stay may not turn out very well. You have a higher risk of death in the first week. What about the S3? Has the data on that changed? 
Well, it's the same type of data that if you have an S3, you're risk- going to have a troponin and a PMP. Well, you will be obtaining those data later, but if the S3 is there, it's also a marker of worse outcome. Patients who have, don't have S3s do better than patients who have S3s. Now, heart failure divides into two sorts of groups. There's the patients who are, don't have an S3 because it is just non-existent, and it can be for two reasons. One, it can be because their flow is just terrible, and they don't make any heart sounds because they have no blood flow. Right. Those people are clearly sick and not going to do well. Yeah. The other population is the population of people who aren't sick at all, and they don't have an S3 either. Interestingly enough, if you look at really young people, and by young I mean under 20, they may have S3s 15, 20% of the time. By the time you're age 40, that goes to 5%. So it can be a normal finding when you're young. It is not normal when you're older, and heart failure is a disease predominantly in old people. We do see it, you know, viral cardiomyopathies and some unusual reasons for young people having heart failure, but 85% of heart failure is old people. And so it is where the money diagnosis is. Dr. Peacock, thanks for being with us today. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you, and I have a feeling uh, you're a great teacher as well as a great physician. Thank you for the opportunity to be here today. We've been discussing CHF and risk stratification. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com. Register with the promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thank you again for listening.